0: Hello and welcome to the Football Collective podcast, the football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia.
1: Hello, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Football Collective Podcast. We have with us Dr. Dan Plumley with us, who is a sport finance expert and lecturer in the Sheffield Business School of Sheffield Hallam University. Hello, Dan, how are you?
0: Afternoon, Southlake. Very well, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm not too bad. I hope you are doing well in this pandemic situation and with the lockdown.
0: Surviving, I think is the word.
1: Uh, And definitely like surviving is the case with most of the football clubs around us to be really honest and so one thing one of the major questions which i want to ask you is like what is the major effect of the COVID-19 situation on the revenues of the football clubs like we have heard about heard a lot about leagues will lose this much amount of money and a lot of various things but for an average football fan it is not quite clear because Okay, you lose 100 million of money, but where does that leave you in terms of basically, you can say, spending the money or in terms of daily running of the clubs? So, basically, I would like to ask you the question where does it say, leave the, some of the top clubs, say, the top six of the Premier League, and also some of the clubs at the bottom of the league, such as you say, League One or League Two clubs?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think we, we have to start with. Match day revenue, don't we? So this is the the biggest hit, I suppose, financially. And if you look at where a football club gets its money from, you know, three mainstreams that we know of, match day, broadcasting and commercial. So if we start with match day income uh, and work around the leagues and some of the examples that you, you talked about there, we know at the minute that no clubs are generating any match day income. Whilst the game was on hold, there was no money coming in from match day operations. And even now, games being played behind closed doors, it doesn't give clubs the opportunity to realise any real matchday revenues. And that has different impacts depending on where you are in the league and the league in which you compete in. So if we we start right at the top in the Premier League in England, we know that matchday income is still important to those clubs, absolutely, but they are somewhat protected by the huge broadcasting money um, that we see in the Premier League. So in that regard... We still have complications around some of the finances. So to try and give you a couple of examples, we've recently seen Tottenham Hotspur come out and say that they're expected to lose up anything around £200 million in revenue from matchday incomes if fans aren't allowed in the round for the whole of next season in 2020-2021. So that's still a huge amount of money for that football club. They generate a, a huge amount of revenue, but that's still a significant hit. As we kind of filter down the leagues, we've also seen obviously Manchester United report quarterly revenues that are down in light of COVID 19. So no clubs really immune, but the Premier League clubs are protected to some extent by the broadcasting money. As we filter further down, the problem becomes even more um, of a concern for some of those clubs, so into the Championship and then especially into Leagues One and League Two, because the TV money is just not there in those leagues. And and those clubs rely on, season tickets rely on fans coming to the match day. That is their main source of income. And these are the clubs that we've seen, you know, the the really sort of horrible stories about potentially clubs going out of business and really struggling to fund day to day operations. It's those clubs in League One and League Two. And if you look at what's happened there in terms of, you know, the the cancellation of, of those leagues in effect, Um, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks that is essentially the club saying we can't afford to play on here Um, you know even in terms of the playoffs that are happening at the minute the Exeter chairman came out and said the other day that that participating in these playoffs is costing the club 150,000 pounds and they've only got a one in four chance of getting promoted in that so you have this really weird situation where clubs are are trying to get promoted still but even then there's some reservations around actually playing these games because of the cost of testing the cost of bringing people back from furlough leave uh, and the cost of playing games behind closed doors so I suppose what you can see there is that, that no clubs immune from this the numbers are very different but it's those clubs really further down the league system that, that are most at risk here from the pandemic and also how that plays into next season with what's looking likely for the potential behind closed those fixtures
1: for the foreseeable future. That was really a nice answer and I guess our viewers will be easily able to understand what you have said. But what I want to basically understand is basically like we have talked about the bubble going post mm-hmm. for football in terms of the salary paid to the players or the high transfer fees in the top divisions of Europe for over around three or four years now. Given the situation, although it is a very bad situation, but do you think it is the right time for the various governing bodies and the various stakeholders who are at the helm to sit together and basically have a hard look at themselves to basically say decide that this is what we want to do going forward to make sure that the future of the club is not in danger should such a situation arise again?
0: I think it's it's certainly on the table, isn't it? We've seen reports recently around salary caps, at, you know, at different leagues, at different levels across Europe. We spoke about that at length in the past in some of our research that we've done around the kind of financial sustainability of, of the European game. I think what this pandemic has done is is really brought to life football's finances and, and you know, they're, they're not great across the board. Even some of the bigger clubs right at the top of the leagues have, you know, are not financially viable in, in the long term they still live very much on a short term existence and it's it's something like this that's really sort of driven that home for us to see it there's one or two issues I think within the salary caps that, that would be a big sticking point and you know it's, it's whilst people can see the respective merits of them that there's a couple of questions around what level of salary cap you would set is it based on a percentage of turnover so we know that UEFA set a directive of 70% wages to turn over, but it's not really a hard cap. It's it's a target that you need to, to hit to get into UEFA competitions. Um, the other way to go is you go for a, a fixed figure salary cap. And again, how do you determine what that figure is for, for respective leagues? And remember that clubs also vote on these proposals. And the other sticking point, I guess, is if you look at what's happened in Rugby Union over the last week, and their their agreement to reduce the salary cap for a couple of years back to lower levels whilst this pandemic you know works its way through clubs' finances. There's been a bit of a resistance to that from the players and the, the players then looking to use uh, you know the, the, the equivalent of the PFA in rugby to to really sort of you know look at whether or not this is right for the players that have signed those contracts and should they be challenging that sort of legislation. So I think There's a general consensus on the whole in the game that that salaries is something that we perhaps should be looking at more closely now more than ever. But that does come with added challenges of of how that fits with the players and the contracts that they signed and the legalities of that. And also from a governance perspective, because as we know in English football, the the Premier League is self-governing, signs its own broadcasting deals, looks after its own member clubs. And then the Football League looks after the other 72 clubs at the minute Um, and those clubs also get to vote on those proposals so is is that trade-off at a governance level as well in terms of if it was to be implemented in the Premier League or the Football League how does the promotion and relegation aspect through those leagues have an impact on the salary cap so there's some real issues within that moving forward but I've no doubt that the clubs will be at the very least thinking about it.
1: And also one of the major sticking points throughout the course of the last few months has been parachute payments. Uh, and basically there have been calls. They, you have done a research which said that parachute payments give basically unfair advantage to the teams who, who have access to those payments. But there have been calls in general that it is time for EFL to effectively scrap parachute payments because it is effectively paying 270 million to three clubs over the course of three seasons to reward failure and effectively allowing those clubs to keep hold of some of the average talents or you can say top talents for a huge sum of money. And as we know that salary caps and also parachute payments and everything forms a huge aspect of, you can say, the competitive balance of the overall structure of the league. So do you think like across the whole of Europe, it is the right time to probably slowly drain out the parachute payment from these league structures?
0: Yeah, again, I think, you know, it's it, all these issues and, and all these individual factors have a, have a wider effect, don't they? So, you know, our, our research on parachute payments in English football, we, we could clearly see that they were they were causing, a, they were harming the competitive balance in the championship. It's not the only factor. We know that there's multiple factors at play. But it is one huge factor, and as you say there with some of the figures, you have a situation whereby, at the minute, under the current um, parachute payment regulations, three clubs that are getting relegated in the first season alone earn £42 million more than the other 21 clubs in the league before a ball's been kicked. And then you look at the ability of those clubs to spend in a transfer market to keep bigger players on bigger contracts. You know, to look at how... They manage that transition, but all the while bearing into to the fact that there's other clubs that are nowhere near them from a revenue perspective. And, you know, we've seen that play out in the data that it's detrimental to that league. And again, that's that's a governance issue, but it's a governance issue that, that the EPL and, and the EFL have got to try and work together on, I suppose, because it's the Premier League that pay the parachute payments. Um, the Premier League also pays solidarity payments to the championship clubs. As part of that system, but the gap is too large. I think is is what's quite clear. I think when you branch that out into other leagues in Europe, again, it 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 does have a different spin on it, dependent on the numbers. So, you know, in in Italy, for example, the parachute payments are nowhere near at the levels of the Premier League. They're around five million euros, I think, at, at the latest count, if I remember rightly. Um, likewise, if you drop further into some of the the perceived, you know. Lesser leagues, not not doing them any disservice, but but leagues in Denmark and Austria, their parachute payments are only five hundred thousand euros per club. So you have you have similar challenges, but you have very different scales on the numbers. And I think what's clear here with the Premier League in particular is, you know, at the minute we're talking about. A parachute payment that is 90 million pounds over three seasons, and, and that just seems excessive given the disparities in revenue between those clubs. And, and it certainly has a knock on effect then on the pitch.
1: Thank you. We have seen over the last couple of weeks, as we you ha- have already touched upon it, that clubs essentially agreeing to curtail the League One and League Two seasons, but that has left some of the tricky mm-hmm. scenarios, mm-hmm. as you can say, basically, Tranmere Rovers being relegated on the basis of unweighted points per game with a score of 0.01, if I'm not wrong. And thinking about it, as we have seen, we have seen clubs in France effectively challenging the league and taking them to court as the league has decided to relegate them. So obviously there are legal issues which these clubs can create. But where does such systems, basically, you can say, leave the governing body, which is in this case the English Football League, in terms of maintaining the integrity of the league?
0: Yeah, it's it's a really tricky one, isn't it? I think you know, integrity obviously works both ways. I think that we've seen such a strange scenario here, and, and let's remember this has never happened before. Certainly not not in our lifetime, and, and probably you know ever really if you, if you track it back in terms of having to potentially cancel a league season. I think I'm also right in saying that in France there is something in their legislation that says that the league can take the action to to curtail if they deem the circumstances are necessary we haven't got that in English football which is why there's been such a a fallout in such a kind of uh, every time we've seen a meeting and and clubs can't agree because there's no regulation for this but I think that there was unfortunately there was always going to be winners and losers I think it depends on which it's it's obviously depends on which side of the moral fence you sit on in in some regards with that but but take Tramnir as an example and also take into account the fact that the four clubs that are currently competing in the League One playoffs all voted to, to cancel the season, obviously knowing full well that they were going to be in the playoffs. So this is where you kind of come back to this, this wider narrative that you know it, it sits outside the finances but is underpinned by it because we know that we want football clubs to work together. We want that ideal that, that everyone's in it together. It, in practice, are they really... If you look at how it's played out, arguably not. You know, you have clubs that will will always vote in their own interests, but, but that's the system that we're in at the minute. And I think, if anything, moving forward, I think what we probably will see is, you know, hopefully we're never in this position again. Um, because obviously it, it goes much wider than football. But I think what we'll probably see is, is governing bodies reacting and, and writing in some legislation that, that says that they have the overriding power here to make this decision. Um, and we've often said that perhaps the clubs are too powerful, have too much of a say, and that, that the governing bodies perhaps need to take control in exceptional circumstances. And I think that's one way to look at this in terms of you know some, some regulation that we might see written in in the future that says, OK, so, so if this happens again and we're in this position, we, the league, will, will take the overriding say and there has to be yeah, winners and losers. I think the problem we've seen here is that Clubs have started a season under one set of regulations and then this has hit with with nine ten games to go. And it's how you then look to curtail a season based on, you know, three quarters of it already being completed. And hence why we've seen some unfortunate situations with Tranmere. We've also seen Barnett sneak into the, the National League playoffs from, you know, a rise of four or five places going the other way. So that that's unfortunate in that regard, but I think the governing bodies here will have a role to play in the future with with how they react to these type of crises. Albeit, we hope we don't get one in the future, of
1: course. Thank you. Uh, so, my next question is basically: I guess you have read, UEFA has announced a new set of financial fair play regulations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that will be in effect essentially for the for part of 2019-20 and the entirety of 2021 season. How does it essentially affect? Financial fair play for the big clubs across Europe, and also you can say Manchester City's transfer ban.
0: Yeah, um, the the second one is is really tricky, isn't it? Let's deal with the first one and um, on the wider picture. I think it, you know it was it, it was inevitable in some ways that that UEFA were going to uh, react to this, or that you know in in terms of financial fair play, because if you look at some of the figures we spoke about and. You know, Let's say that the Tottenham predictions, um, projections sorry, were, uh, are on the money, so to speak. That club potentially loses £200 million worth of revenue over the course of a season. That has huge implications on their budget, on their bottom line, and every club will be in the same position. So what the clubs will be saying here is, look, we would have expected to get this revenue, which would have then enabled us to hit the regulations that's outside of our control. So you need to give some wriggle room on your regulations in the short term so that we can adjust to these uh, this new climate. And, you know, I, I think that's sensible from a, a regulation point of view. It, it's very hard to, I suppose, penalise those clubs that, that fall within the limits when the money's just not there for them to generate. Uh, so we probably were expecting that from UEFA. I think, you know, that what... Will be the case here is that they'll merge next year's reporting into the, the following season as well and they'll just look to combine those as two years and that will take into account the wider three-year position uh, and again that, that seems a, f- a sensible way to do it based on, on where we're at and obviously not knowing yet whether or not at what point we have fans back in grounds and things get relatively back to normal so and um, i think that was always coming and it, it you know it was, arguably a good thing that, that UEFA have reacted in that way. The Manchester City issue is is difficult, isn't it? Because it, in some ways it gives, it gives them an argument to say, well, if you're going to change the regulations now, some of this has, has happened in the short term when we've been making those budgets and those projections. The counter-argument to that is that what UEFA are looking at with Manchester City is stuff that's happened pre-COVID-19 and that's where the charges are so you know it'd be interesting to see the decision when it comes out i know that you know it was only a couple of days really for for them to make a call and say we'll publish the full decision soon Um, whether or not this new regulation change ever came into those uh, discussions i don't know Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that one plays out and I suppose one wider point here, in terms of UEFA and, and looking at relaxing the restrictions a little bit, is we're still very much aware that clubs will be wanting to spend money in the transfer market. For example, um, you know, players will will have to and want to move on given contract situations. So there is a need here to UEFA to relax some of those regulations to fund the overall operation of the game, uh, whilst we're in a period of of unprecedented times in terms of uh, lack of revenue and and player contracts being extended etc
1: thank you for the answer Dan as usual, it was always nice speaking to you and I hope our listeners enjoy this podcast thanks again thanks Arthur have a nice day
0: and you